and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for the 29th of October 2014. And joining me on this edition is assistant editor Steve Withers. I hate a guy with a car and no sense of humour. News editor Mark Hodgkinson. It's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. Games editor Mark Botwright. Don't rip my blouse. And audio reviewer Ed Selly. You fooled them, haven't you, Michael? But not me. And welcome along to the last podcast in October in 2014. It's still slow news out there, folks. Um, looking for interesting things to talk about that we haven't already talked about umpteen times before, aren't we, Steve? Yeah, a bit, Phil, a bit. This might sound a bit samey in places. <laughs> At least there's no Atmos or Oro 3D this week, folks. So no. let's uh, kick things off with some of the latest competitions out there. And you need to be on your bike and very quick uh, with this one because Oppo's PM2 headphones competition ends today. That is Wednesday. When this podcast goes live, get on your bike if you want to win that. NVIDIA Shield gaming tablet, Mark, is that any uh, any use? Well, uh, I didn't review it, so I can't possibly pass comment on that. <laughs> you could trust Greg. He, he seems to think <laughs> it's pretty good. good. All right, I, I trust Greg then. <laughs> <laughs> That's my endorsement. Okay, I'm glad we sorted that out. And, and the other Mark, what did Greg say about this tablet? He said it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. A, game, a gamer's dream. I think the, 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 the Shield console was a bit of a letdown, but this tablet sort of sets it all, all the wrongs to right. It's very high-spec, uh, well-priced, and it runs things fantastically. And it's an optional game controller to make it uh, the gamer's dream. And, uh, <laughs> gamer's dream. That's, what, that's how we described it. It's a word, it's not mine. Uh, worth buying? That's Greg. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg reckoned it was worth buying. And is it worth winning? Definitely worth winning. Anything's worth winning. There you go. You've heard it from somebody's mouth. It's worth winning uh, going into the competition. And finally, uh, just for forum members, so get signing up if you're not a member. Battlestar Galactica, the complete Blu-ray box set. Steve, this is definitely worth winning. Uh, One of the best series on TV for a long, long time. Struggling to think of anything that that sci-fi that even gets close to it these days. Yeah, it's definitely one of the, um, I'd say one of the best TV shows, regardless of genre, in the last. Um, 10, 15 years, I think it was a superb reboot of what was a pretty ropey series from the se- late 70s. No, you've um, gone like critique- a Dalek. Mm-hmm. Anybody else hear him? Yeah, yeah. Dalek. Yeah, <clears> Dalek. <throat> right. Sorry, Sorry Roy, boy. Doctor Who. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> By your command. <laughs> Eurosport winter sports season has started. I've got skiing on at the moment. Bloody love watching skiing. I hate skiing. But... <laughs> So, what's appealing watching skiing? Uh, well, Anna Feniger has just uh, gone into the lead, and she is just, well, A, she's fantastic to watch when she skis. When she stops skiing, she is fit as a butcher's dog. I and, mean, what's not to like? And what does Mrs. Sally think about this? Uh, Mrs. Sally's more of a figure skater fan, if I'm <laughs> honest, but, you know, to each their own. I'll be back, Steve. Yeah, I'm back, yeah. Do I sound Yeah, you sound a a bit better now. Yeah. Okay, so so that's our competitions. Uh, Well worth entering, well worth winning. If you want the Oppo headphones, you have to be quick, though. And uh, thankfully, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, you still have time. If you're listening any other time of the week, sorry, it's gone now. Right, let's move on. Hardware news. And uh, Steve, you went along to Panasonic's HQ last week uh, to have a closer look at the AX902. And I guess the biggest news story here is it's not the TV that promised at CES. No. Uh, well, I, I'm not exactly sure what they were showing us at CES. Obviously, that was a prototype, 
but I am very surprised when they told us on Friday that the sixty, the fifty-five and sixty-five inch versions of the new AX nine hundred two are using IPS panels. Um, now, anyone who knows anything about panels will know that if you want really good blacks, go for a VA panel. If you want wide viewing angles, go for an IPS panel. Um, the fact that they were claiming, you know, better than plasma performance back at CES. I notice they aren't saying that anymore, by the way. But when they were claiming it back at CES, um, you know, with a full array backlight, local dimming, 128 zones, to use an IPS panel just seems crazy. Obviously, uh, I guess it's because um, they're shipping them in from the cheapest supplier and you can guess who makes them because um they're passive the 55 and 65 inch tvs i surprised i was very surprised at that given the amount of you know hype they put into these tvs um to, to use an ips panel is very strange when you're trying to you know, produce really deep black levels particularly on an lcd panel um otherwise it's pretty much as advertised previously um you know the design the shape the build the um, features are all um, as you'd expect from the current flagship models in, in Panasonic's range. Um, it's using a quad-core processing. Certainly that the processing on board looks very impressive. The level of uh, sophistication in terms of the smart features is very good. Um, we didn't get a chance to hear it in terms of sound quality, so I can't comment on that. But um, the design, anyone who's seen any of um, the 802 or the, um, a, um, the AX802, it's the same kind of design, that kind of slight tilt to the... Um, with a big heavy stand behind it that supports it, so I'm guessing this um, this TV is going to weigh a fair bit, particularly the 85 inch version. Um, yeah, it uses 128 zones for local dimming. I mean, I mean, they were they were comparing the they were showing the TV next to an actual, but um, it had a, a bit of black tape over the name Sony, but it was obviously a Sony Trinitron um, studio monitor CRT, um, very small, and uh, you know you could see the black levels in that compared to to the um, to the AX902, and, and clearly it wasn't as good. Um, we did ask for the lights to be turned out at one point, um, and um, it looked okay for an LCD, but it didn't look as good as it did in the demo that we saw at CES back in January, Phil, in my opinion, although I'm basing that up on memory. Uh, and they seem to be pushing uh, brightness more than they were black levels at this point. You know, they, they, it was a very bright panel, they said, and um, you know, you, you could go up to 700 nits, in fact. So it looks like they're trying to kind of <laughs> slightly moving away from the uh, super blacks and plasma performance to a bright all-round ultra hd panel with good local dimming local dimming did look good actually these are some of the some of the traditional uh, tests you often see so that sequence from harry potter when everyone's amassing on the on the hillside with voldemort and um, there's a lot of a lot of uh, detail in the shadows there and it handled that pretty well actually compared to some of the tvs we've seen in the past it looks pretty good now the big thing is it's three and a half grand for the 55 inch it's five grand for the uh, 65 inch and 12 grand for the 85 inch and you know, given you can buy a 60, well, we'll be able to buy a 65 inch Ultra HD 4K OLED TV from LG for six grand. Who's going to pay five grand for a? Well, it's just that's an LCD a, that's a, yeah, it's a big could. Yeah, <laughs> yes. well, that's true. Assuming LG ever did get the TVs out. <laughs> yeah. It's not expensive compared to, say, Samsung's uh, uh, Ultra HD TVs, which have been very strong this year, um, you know, or Sony or the X9005, X9005, which is an absolutely stonking telly. Uh, you know, that's a very toppy price point. It is a bit disappointing on what you're, you're saying there, Steve. Uh, you know, IPS panel, which means it's got a restricted contrast ratio for a start. They're never strong that way. It might have that local dimming, but, you know, how is it for, you know, just out of black shadow detail? I take it's non-existent. No, it wasn't good. You could definitely see that when you were comparing it to the CRT monitor. It was, uh, yeah, it was. I mean, the 85-inch does use a VA panel um, and active shutter 3D. You know, I mean, obviously, people would be looking at the 55, in particular, the 65-inch would have been, I think, a, a strong contender. 
And I think there'll be a lot of disappointed um, enthusiasts out there when they when they discover that it's an IPS panel and not a VA panel. Yeah, I can only assume, and you know, this is just us assuming and and speculating. But uh, maybe it had something to do with price. Maybe it's cheaper for them to shove an IPS panel in there than it is a, a VA. I think it's definitely cheaper than to do that. I think that's it's definitely a price, which is surprising when they're charging five grand for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, pretty, it's inexcusable almost, isn't it? This was going to be the enthusiast TV, and then they, they, they completely ruin it all with panel choice. Bizarre, very bizarre. I think it was gone from. I was I was going to fight you for this one for this sample, but I, <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> there you go, Steve. You're reviewing well, you, it. You right. can force it upon Mark just for a laugh. <laughs> I've yet to see a really effective dimming system in an IPS panel. No, you're right. Actually, I tend to agree with that, Mark. I think I think you know if you, you want to start from a good base, don't you? Yeah. Before you start messing around with any dimming, you want to start from a good, decent base. And you know, a, D, a good VA panel now can get down to what point zero five. Yeah, I mean that. that. Well, I've just done the AX six thirty, haven't I? So that that got down to zero four one. Yeah. That. Yeah. Panel. That's not bad for an LCD panel, is it? That's really no, good. It's acceptable, certainly. And so you put in celebrity on top of that, then you're starting to get some quite impressive um, black levels from, from an LCD panel. Um, certainly that was the case with the Sony, with the uh, um, the X9005. You start off with an IPS panel, it's more of a struggle. And it was it certainly was not as impressive a demonstration this time as it was when we... I mean, admittedly, previously it was a prototype, and I'm pretty sure they were using a VA panel, or they claimed they weren't, but I'm positive they were. Um that was more impressive back at CES when they had it in a pitch black room next to a ZT. Um, yeah. Now we were just in a normal room next to a very small CRT monitor. So, Okay, so we should be getting this in for review. Um, we're obviously not going to make our minds up until it's been in, it's been tested, it's been put through its paces in a proper living room. Uh, it's going to be Steve's living room by the sound of it. <laughs> and uh, we, get to see it. we get to see it in person and, and then... Obviously, we can start making some uh, some conclusions about this product. Yeah, I think I'll be, you're hitting the shops um, in about a week or so, and review samples should also be available around about the same time. And for those of you who've got the AX802, the um, upgrade, well, when you're going to get Netflix 4K, that I think is released, the software is released on the 11th of November. Okay, there you go. So that was uh, Panasonic's announcement last end of last week and uh, something going up on this site as well, which should be there by the time the, uh, the podcast goes out. All right, so let's move on. We're talking about the quality of the panels, Steve, the quality of the, the TVs and so on. But um, yeah, it, it was quite surprising. You've had a projector recently that had one HDMI and then had an, an assortment of legacy um, connections, one of them being S-Video. Um, yeah. <laughs> we've also seen I mean most TVs still come with a SCART socket RGB SCART there are like we say projectors that still come with legacy connections there are still AVRs that have um, all these legacy video connections which is why you know when you look at the back panel sometimes it is a bit intimidating because of everything on there so is it a case Steve that, that not everything has moved on to the best possible connection and, and actually is HDMI the best possible connection to use? <laughs> well, we can save the debate on whether HDMI is a good connection or not for another time, I think. That could take some time to get through. Uh, certainly, speaking personally, I haven't used anything but HDMI for, what, 10 years now, is it? Uh, when did it start? When did I start using HDMI? 2005 or six. So, hmm, eight years, maybe? Hmm. Okay. I've used exclusively HDMI, I think, for all my connections. Prior to that, I had a bit of DVI and component hmm. video. Uh, and way back in the old days of Laserdisc, S-Video. But, I mean, I haven't touched an S-Video connection in so long. I can't even remember when I last would have used that. I think most people nowadays generally are using, certainly for video, 
using HDMI. I think any product you buy now, certainly if you buy Blu-ray player, it's only got an HDMI output. That's your only option. It would be the same with a games console now. If you've got a PS4, it's HDMI. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining most people, certainly with new equipment, it's HDMI. Then there may be people who still have things like a SCAR connector knocking around, possibly. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'm always amazed at how many legacy connections they seem to put on the back of AV receivers, given how few people I should imagine actually use. I mean, I mean, who's using composite video, seriously? Has anybody, has anybody actually ever used? Yeah, laser disc, very early days of laser Very disc. early days, yeah. But certainly, I don't think anyone. So why have they got like five composite video connections on when I don't think anyone uses them at all? Um, S-Video, again, I mean, there's not a product made in the last five or six years that will have an S-Video apart from the the, uh, the Optoma projector I viewed a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, so, I mean, like it or whether you like HDMI or not, it is the de facto connector currently, um, and I don't think that's going to be changing anytime soon. So, yeah, yeah certainly I, I like to see things like AVRs have lots and lots of HDMI connectors on, because I think as we discussed last week, you can uh, quickly accumulate quite a few pro- devices that are using HDMI. I, I've got uh, six in the lounge alone, you know, a minimum of six inputs on an on AVR, really. Yeah. So I guess the, the only place where you might still be using legacy is with some of the older games consoles, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I've used um, S video in the past couple of months with an old Dreamcast. Um, I know certainly, well, there were a hell of a lot of um, Xbox 360s, the first generation ones, um, that were set up in shops through. Um, composite um rather than component because it it came with both on the end of the cable and so most shops just kind of plugged them in the front of tvs and that kind of thing so yeah they're they're, it is a place where people might want those connections still because you know kind of old consoles do tend to linger for a long time and and once they hit about kind of you know 12 15 years then they start to become more collectible once again so people will want those um and also there, there are a lot of ones where like um you know they released vga cables and things like that which are rare as hen's teeth you know there are certain consoles where you know the cables themselves to get the best possible connection are just ridiculously hard to find in the u.s less so in, in Europe, it must be said, you do encounter people that have got legacy video distribution systems built into their houses. And it's essentially a means of getting the AV receiver in a, in a limited way, because there's no bones about it. It's not like it downscales HDMI to any of these outputs or anything like that. But it, it you, it's, it's weird. I think you could get rid of a lot of these legacy collections in, in, in Europe no one would bat an eyelid i think you'd run into more resistance in the us and canada because they do there's there is an element of it still being used quite widely for sort of you know secondary and and, and tertiary requirements but i think in the uk if your device has an hdmi output and input then you're best off using it it's, it's simplest it's probably going to be the best solution i know absolutely it has the advantage it has the, it goes the same advantage that scart had one connection does picture and sound and from a non-enthusiast perspective that's quite welcome you know yeah. the moment that you were running two separate connections from something there, there was all manner of scope for someone to make a complete horlix of it so my, um, although hdmi has many many failings it does at least do that yeah, for anyone who, who slags off HDMI, just remember the days when you had three connections for component <laughs> video and seven audio connections for the output on the back of your Blu-ray player, which was doing the audio decoding and sending it into your amp. You know, 10 <laughs> different cables just for one device. Yeah, and let's, let's not go 
uh, with cable quality. That is definitely for another podcast, um, and that includes HDMI as well, because I think the the most general bit of information you can give regarding HDMI is if it's under five meters and it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, don't go spending a fortune unless you want something that looks pretty. It won't affect the picture quality or sound quality, but it will last a bit longer because it's a it's been built a bit better. And if you like to dress your rack, and Ed, it is a it is a thing where people will dress their racks. <laughs> yeah, uh, not 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 a thing here. I stress the back. Well, th- this this current rack has only been in for a month, and it already <laughs> it already looks like the scene with Robert De Niro in Brazil back there. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's it, it. I I appreciate it. I understand it. But I don't participate in it. It's uh, just just a bit too much. Yes, for me. but other people do. <laughs> so I mean, don't get me wrong. There are there are certain quite clever things that certain cable companies do, where um, they do a different finish for different cable functions. So you can, at a glance, just look down the back and see what's connected to what. Um, you know, so that there are, you do, you don't actually need to spend a fortune. There are certain companies that do that at relatively sensible money. Um, so that, I mean, there are one or two aesthetic advantages and I have to say that I, I'm prepared every time to spend out for connectors, be they HDMI, be they phono, be they whatever that don't start to fall apart on me because I mean, it's a bit different here because we're constantly plugging and disconnecting and items like that. But just the number of times that cheap plugs have either stayed connected to the unit or more maddeningly taken part of the unit with them um yeah i i uh, yeah there's certain yeah. C- certain standards i don't like to, to, to i, fall I think i think the whole problem when it comes to cables why it's such a a, a big mass debate wonderful <laughs> <laughs> sorry i couldn't resist that speaking of um, which can I have some photographs of your rack please <laughs> who's mine or his <laughs> I put one on the Facebook. <laughs> on the Facebook. Yeah. On the Facebook. On the Facebook, okay. Um yeah. So I guess a lot of the a lot of the debates actually come back to the old analogue days, Ed, where cables did make a difference and shielding made a difference and you know, being proper properly made, properly properly constructed and so on did make a difference yeah. when it was composite video or component video or it was analog audio in today's world of hdmi i think this is where you have all the confusion and why people say oh well it looks better through that 50 pound hdmi cable than the 10 pound rubbish it, it can't possibly That's physically impossible it's physically impossible it cannot do that and magazines that review hdmi cables and say uh, the black levels are superb and video processing was better how the hell can a can a cable improve video processing and black levels yeah, you know it, it's absolute bollocks it is um it has to be said but you can see where the confusion comes in ed because looking back in the past it did make a difference and cables were worth spending a little bit of money on well, yes, and um, as I say, even if you, in a, and don't get me wrong, plenty of people, um, sometimes myself to an extent, um, didn't necessarily buy into the, the, the promises being made of analog cables. As I say, I was always prepared to pay out for something which is just sufficiently robust to handle what I'm asking of it. And that didn't mean it was necessarily expensive. I mean, for years and years and years, my AV system down here was... Um, uh, entirely cabled, all speaker cabling was done with the QED original because I honestly think that it will survive the end of the world. It's just 
utterly indestructible. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, cheap, you, some of the cheaper cables that you got, you know, it's when, you're, when you, you know, you would go check it after six months and it started to turn green. Mm-hmm. You thought, mm, do you know what? This may not be entirely free of the impurities that they were claiming. So, you know, it was always worth, it. on two levels, it was always worth spend, uh, spending out for a degree of quality in terms of just general construction, fit and finish. And then, yes, depending on application, it, it became important. I mean, certainly if you are a nutter involving turntables, the pitiful nature of a signal that comes out of the back of a, of, of a cartridge Trust me when I say that c- cable degradation makes a di- makes a, a, a bit of a difference when you're dealing with 0.3 of a millivolt. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that that stuff like that starts to matter. Yeah, and, I mean uh, the other thing is, I mean, I, I don't know about yourself, but I've been Abbey Road probably about four or five times now. I've been Air Studios a few times, been to Galaxy Studios a few times, um, and we've been in these. Uh, mixing areas, we've been in the recording studios, we've been in where they've mic'd things up and all the rest of it. They're using cable that's no, not much better than bell wire. Yeah. So, you know, that's how they're recording things and and you, know, you then look at the hi-fi world and you think, well, why are you spending £5,000 on a metre of cable because when when the original was recorded on something that was just a little bit better than bell wire? Yeah. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, um, it, the way that a lot of studios, I mean, I, Abbey Road is not one I'm intimately familiar with, but the way a lot of them are laid out, almost all of the, the important cabling is done actually pre-amplified because it's going to actives. So, I mean, Abbey Road's unusual in so much as it uses passive speakers. I mean, most most studios simply use good quality balanced either microphone it's, or XLR cable. Yeah, it's usually Channel X that, that are in yeah. most, uh, most and studios. And then it just, essentially, they just get the signal in it, in... Re- reasonable order to to active speakers and, and sort it out from there. Yeah, I mean where where the difference is is in the mixing desk is why the they still have mixing desks from the nineteen sixties because it has a certain sound to it. Um, they they keep certain desks or they keep certain microphones because it has a certain sound. So it's nothing to do with the cabling or anything like that. But I think we've gone too far into the cables. <laughs> we said we'll, we'll come back to that in another podcast. I think because that that's possibly a, a full podcast just talking about you know. Cables, cable quality, it's certainly HDMI and digital signals and, you know, all that kind of thing we can come back to. But the other thing I think we need to bear... Right, can we, if we do that, well, I need to make damn sure that we're not doing it on one of my 5-2 diet days because there's no <laughs> way I'm approaching that sober. I'm sorry, not, not a chance. <laughs> right, okay. Well, the other thing that we need to bear in mind um, when we're talking about connections, cables, is the sources. And uh, Stevie put out uh, an article this week about how to correctly set up uh, the source so you are getting the best signal from it uh, through either your, your AVR or straight into your display. So give us a little roundup of what you discussed in that. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously we, we've covered at length um, setting up your TV or projector to get the best picture out of it, you know, things like selecting movie or cinema mode, that kind of stuff. But next sort of step in the video chain is obviously your source, and you want to make sure that's set up correctly too. Ideally, what you want your source to be doing, regardless of what the source is, you want it to be outputting the signal, you know, unmolested to the display, um, either in its native resolution or, if necessary, upscale to resolution to match the display you're using. So, for example... Blu-ray player. You don't want, you know, unfortunately, there's been a bit of a trend of late where manufacturers have been putting picture controls on Blu-ray players. We do not want that. You just want the player to play what's on the disc, send it to the TV. The TV 
has the picture controls. That's the whole point of Picture Perfect to get use those to set the TV correctly, not on the player. And and they even have you know picture modes as well, which is equally distressing. So if you're not sure any player's got one of these picture modes or that, I mean, obviously the picture controls leave them you know zeroed. Um, if is it got a picture mode, anyone know which one is the most accurate for un, for not touching the signal? Probably best thing to do is look in the reviews on AV forums because we do test for that, don't we, Mark? It won't be movie, that's for sure. Yeah, no, it never is. It usually be either because the TV user, are <laughs> user, or, standard um, or user, standard or normal. Or user. Or that I don't know what it is about the word movie and manufacturers in general because it's same for audio manufacturers. I don't remember ever having an AV amplifier where the movie sound processing mode was anything other than literally just like a sort of hilarious echo chamber. <laughs> they just all sound proper bobbins. It's like a guaranteed, <laughs> do not use this if you want it to sound like a movie. Unless, I don't know, maybe more cinemas outside of the ones I've been to sound like bathrooms. I don't know, but it just never struck me as natural or right. Somebody anyway. got a washing machine that's just gone on a full cycle. I'm afraid yeah. that is my washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's a nice washing machine though, isn't it? I bet you it's not. It's a uh, it, it's a Zanussi because uh, I bought that back when I was impoverished and stuff. It, don't get yeah. me wrong. As and when it finally explodes, the only reason I know it's there it, it, and finally talk about cables and interference and stuff is because there is interference on your microphone. That, is that? I, I, I can't hear it, but I could hear a change in pitch in your microphone there. Because I can bloody well hear it. It's deafening. It it's a, <laughs> always reminds me of that Simpsons episode with the orange juicer. It's like, I can barely hear it. It's whisper quiet. <laughs> uh, where were we again? Right. Yeah, so you, you, uh, yeah, first rule, when you're setting up your source, you want it to output the signal, whatever the device might be, in an unmolested form, you know, as it is on the disc. So this is, this is another area which really confuses people and which causes debates on forums is because um, manufacturers do add these picture modes and they ship the players with picture modes. And if you will look at a player side by side by another player in a shop, it is likely to look better or worse, Different. depending on... Well, let's use the words that the consumer will use, which is better or worse, <laughs> depending on, on what they, they determine is better. Um, but you will see a difference. Yeah, and that's where there's the kind of the myth about, you know, some Blu-ray players being better than others. If you're watching a Blu-ray on a Blu-ray player via HDMI, they are all they should all be exactly the same. If it's different, it's because the manufacturer is doing something with that signal. It's not because it's somehow better. It can't but be. It's a digital signal. Playing devil's advocate, can you at least see why, should we say, picture settings might be included on a Blu-ray player? Yes, really. be, yes, because a manufacturer has to sell their, yeah. their bit of kit. It's the same as why TVs in showrooms look absolutely hideous. No, but I mean how it might suit some people. I say you have one source for uh, you know a PVR or something like that and you want to set up... You've got a budget TV, you want to set it up so that looks great and there are no picture settings on that, but say your TV doesn't allow for separate input, um, you know, changing picture settings on each input, then you're, you're kind of screwed across everything. So it's, it's clearly kind of aimed at people who have to try and find some kind of a middle ground rather than just saying, well, that's what it looks like, even though it currently looks crap because I've turned everything so that, you know, the skybox or whatever it is looks better. 
So that's actually a good point, Martin, that it's something they do teach in <laughs> calibration courses. That if, if you are in that situation where you haven't got um, source independent picture settings, then you, you might have to make some small adjustments on the player. But it's always ideal to do it on the display wherever possible. But I guess what we're saying is find the mode which doesn't molest the signal yeah. uh, in any way. If you're using an AVR, again, set it to pass through. Don't be, because a lot of AVRs now also, like for example, Onkyo, have. Um, calibration controls in the AVR. Now, maybe if your TV hasn't got any calibration controls, it might be handy. But the, in my experience, they've been put, they're, they're pretty, um, you know, not very granular in terms of the subtlety of their, of their controls. They're, they're fairly um, unsubtle. Uh, and so they're not ideal. I mean, so it would only be as a last resort, as, as I think Mark B just said and Mark H. <laughs> um, if your TV hasn't got any controls, it might be better than nothing. But generally, my advice would be if you're using an AVR, just make sure you're passing through all your sources untouched and let the TV do all the picture processing that you want to do. Okay, I think we've spent long enough on hardware uh, this week. If you have any questions regarding what we've discussed or you want to go and have a look at the articles, you can do that. Go to the front page uh, of avforums.com. You'll find the articles there. You'll then find areas where you can comment on each article or you've got a question for the guys on the podcast here then put it in the podcast forum underneath this podcast and we'll either reply in the thread or we'll raise your question next week on the podcast so let's move on and it's gaming news next what 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 are we talking about here He's just sent a link. I was talking about your rack, by the way, not that skier, but she's quite. Yeah, good. well, I've sent I sent the photo, I sent that through earlier. The rack link. Yeah. <laughs> oh, have a look Couldn't at handle this. the sauciness. <laughs> oh, I was expecting the skier, not this. I've seen <laughs> that. I've seen that on Facebook. Oh, yeah. News, right, okay. What are we looking at? Yeah, it's your bit now. Um, so Xbox One price cut in the US. Tell us all about it. Um, yep, Microsoft have announced that there's going to be fifty dollars off. So down to $349, uh, which obviously, if, you, if you're squeamish, don't look at the exchange rates because that will make you even feel even worse about what you've paid for it. If you're like me and you bought it in the UK at launch, but um, for about two months over the holiday season, so 2nd of November through to 3rd of January, it's a kind of novel idea of having an end date to a sale. Um, you'd assume that would probably become the standard RRP. It's currently going to be US only, uh, but it will apply to the bundles from major retailers. So it's, it's kind of quite an aggressive policy to try and kind of slash prices and reinvigorate sales. Um, a lot of people have taken this to, to mean that perhaps the the one isn't selling at the rates that Microsoft would like. Um, it's It's been some like uh, eight months, nine months in a row now. The PS4 has outsold it, been the top selling console in... Uh, the US, so on home turf, it's not doing that great. And worldwide, uh, there was a recent predictive article from Ars Technica who said that, well, looking at the numbers, which obviously Microsoft kind of skirt around, that the PS4 is probably at least 40% higher in worldwide sales. Um, it's tough because Microsoft tend to stick with words like um, how many consoles have been shipped and lumping Xbox consoles all as one thing so xbox one and 360 um they've said they've shipped 4.2 million units to retailers in the quarter ending september the 30th which is a, over a hundred percent rise but bear in mind they did also launch it in 28 new territories so that's you know a lot of consoles going out to shops ready to be sold um so it's it's 
if you look at say the the actual charts for games themselves again it seems to be the ps4 versions are selling better so microsoft are, are kind of taking things on the front foot now and they're trying to to get aggressive with their pricing they've obviously already jettisoned connect and so they've slashed the price there um and so you've also got 100 pound off on the uk price so I, I don't know how much further they can go with the UK. I mean, you would hope that perhaps we might see it down at least maybe two nine nine, which would you know that's kind of the magic figure. A lot right. of people tend to look at new consoles when it gets below three hundred pounds. Then that's when they seriously start thinking about it. And Microsoft have kind of been around that price for a while because of various bundles, free games, that kind of thing um, have lowered the price. But if you can just get the console out for two nine nine, then I think that'd be a significant step. What is the price at the minute? Three hundred and twenty nine pounds. It launched for four hundred and twenty nine pounds in the UK, but that was with the Connect or Connect two point um, and that was perceived to be kind of bumping the price by about eighty pounds. So you know they've gone below that. So there has been a, a price cut of sorts over and above. Um, but but again, it's still the question of it's still seen by a lot of people as the kind of secondary system. It, it's it's chasing the PS4 at the moment. So in order to kind of gain parity, they've got to do something, you know, fairly bold. And the first console that hits two nine nine, as most of the games out are third party games. A lot of games are, are now releasing with kind of parity in terms of resolution so there's not a huge amount of difference uh, you know some games like destiny get exclusive content on ps4 there'll be games that come out on the one i think uh, the latest call of duty is going to have i believe it's going to have uh, xbox one exclusive content um but it, it's it's i think a lot will be a lot will depend on how how much um the new halo collection master chief collection actually helps shift consoles because that's you know it's a huge amount of games there um and given the fact that destiny's kind of starting to to get people a bit tired it's it's not been the the big new dawn that people assumed it would be in the same way that titanfall before it kind of tripped over itself i think a, you know a decent first person shooter like uh halo collection could actually you know, really resonate with people who are looking for something next gen, but kind of that safety blanket of games they've already played. And if you see, say, stuff like um, The Last of Us, stuff that gets that even in recent uh, times people have already played, but if it gets that little extra bit of spit and polish and brings it up, raises the resolution, and if you consider the huge bump that the original Halo and Halo 2 will get, um, you know, that's going to be a huge game going into the holiday season. And there are there are quite a few games on PS4 and Xbox One, you know, third-party games and exclusives that have just slowly shifted further and further back in the release schedule. So if, if Microsoft were to do this for the UK and hit, say, 299 with the games they've got coming out, I think it could be pretty big. Yeah, um, I can see why that would be, say, psychological price point that, that would definitely get people on board. Um, fanboys aside, is it still a case of um, some people buy into these consoles because of the game? you know, the want to play the game. Is is that still a big thing? What, one one game being kind of a system seller? Yeah. Uh, I think it is, but again, I think that tends to fall in line with, with the price point of a console, which is the game has to be significantly 
large and you know most games these days are third party but also at 299 i think things become more likely to be system sellers at 250 again even more so but as when you're over 300 pounds to buy it for one game and that there's always that risk that it just won't be what you expected of it yeah. um but uh, perhaps the only game that it, it would still the appropriate for would be something like the Master Chief Collection because people know exactly what they're getting from that. They're getting as much of an, an update and they're getting a kind of trip down memory lane. But they're also, you know, you're playing all the games again. That all the servers will be online so you can play your favourite multiplayer maps from, you know, games gone by and be playing it in, in a decent resolution. It's certainly one that's piqued my interest, and if the, if it does tip under three hundred, I think I see myself going Xbox One. Um, I've played all the Halos all the way through and, and loved them all, really. So yeah, if, if it can get under three hundred quid, Master Chief Collection, that'll that'll do me nicely. On the other hand, we're getting a Wii U next for uh, Mario Kart, so that's a system seller for me. You see, I can I can think of n- nothing I'd rather r- rather do less than play Mario Kart. It's a racing game for people that hate racing. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's absolutely perfect. Actually. Which is me. But yeah, you see, I, I, I don't hate racing. I like racing very much. So the idea that some twat can fire a tortoise shell at you. <laughs> F1 would be improved with that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Blue shell. Well, banana skin. That, that's an argument for another day, isn't it? It's one of those things. Mario Kart is like a joke where everyone else gets the punchline except me. I just, no, loathe it. The world's against you, Ed. It is. It's a conspiracy. Actually, it's not a conspiracy. They are all definitely out to get me. So uh, before we wrap up, Mark, anything else you need to tell us about? Uh, yep. Uh, we've been a little bit slack recently with various kind of, you know, real life getting in the way, unfortunately. But um, little bit coming... slack. <laughs> yeah. What? You want to pick something up? Well, Do you want to step that. outside? <laughs> <laughs> Into the virtual world? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was a virtual world, yeah. 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 All right. <laughs> I'll take you on in Killzone. Right. Fight yeah, like men. Definitely, definitely beat me in Killzone. Yeah. Now, uh, Manny's got, uh, hopefully, a review of NBA 2K15. Um, Leon says he's got a, a dive kick review that he says has been kind of dying to come out for quite a while. Uh, Steve will be looking at the Borderlands pre-sequel, and James, hopefully, will have his interview about Titan Souls coming out as well. Excellent. So is that games news? That is games news, and ending on a slightly more positive note. <laughs> then the world's been against Ed. I don't know. I think that's an important message. <laughs> <laughs> Be back in a sec. Okay, I can only start with one question, and hopefully he's been this week. Uh, what's at the cinema, Steve? This week it's Fury, the new Brad Pitt Men in a Tank movie. Um, which uh, I've got to say <laughs> was a bit disappointing. Um, it looked quite good in the trailers. Um, yeah, I thought World War II action movie, you know, very realistic, uh, interesting cast, apart from Shia LaBeouf. And then um, when I got to it, you know, it's one of those films that's uh, lots of that, lots of explosions, lots of noise, lots of action. An attempt at being realistic, although that falls down drastically towards the end when they have a big battle that's, that's frankly ludicrous for anyone who knows anything about actual warfare. Um, and, and no real point to it. You know, yeah, I know war's awful, um, but, you, you know, I'd like to at least care about the characters. I mean, you know, it very much wants to be Private Ryan, but unlike Private Ryan, where you kind of care about the men in the platoon, um, this old squad, rather, this is, um, you know, you don't really like most of the flicks in the tank. 
Uh, and it's also so cliched. You've got the, uh, you know, the sort of experienced sergeant in charge. You've got the guy who's a bit of a nasty. You've got the sort of token ethnic. You've got the um, religious guy. And you've got the new guy, you know, the young, innocent guy who gets, you know, corrupted by war and, uh, and loses his innocence and becomes a killer by the end of this sort of thing. Very hackneyed and cliched. Some of it's really accurate. I mean, certainly the tanks... For anyone who knows anything about tanks, there's a real tiger tank in this. No mucking about, no f- borrowed from Boddington Tank Museum. So that, that looks great. And there's a, there's a tiger tank against three Shermans and three real Shermans too. And that scene was awesome. If you, if you like tanks, it was great. But you just kind of felt like, what, what was the point of all that? It didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. Um, and I didn't really like the people and the characters. And, and the, end of it, the ending was ludicrous. So you walked away a bit disappointed, really. Also, it's typical of any American war film now, World War II war film. Apparently, we weren't there. <laughs> There's no British or, you know, uh, Commonwealth soldiers appear at any point in this film. It's all just Americans. I'll probably wait for the Blu-ray. Yeah, but I would like to get you. I would like you to see it. Uh, Ed, only, only to hear you hopefully rant about it. To be honest, the idea, as you know, I don't like going to the cinema. It's got other people in it, so having to go there to see something which is is only mediocre <laughs> is, uh, is 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 a bit trying, if I'm honest. But we'll see. We'll see. You could have said it tanked. Oh, <laughs> oh, he's he not tank. He's actually doing quite quite well box office wise. I know, but you um, use the pun at least. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's appropriate. So, yeah, 6 out of 10. It tanked. Oh, Marmite, you smell. I don't even want to go there. <laughs> well, Do you we only have just... one cat called Marmite? I have one cat called Marmite and one cat called Lily. So you didn't call one Bovril? I didn't <laughs> name Marmite. He's my neighbour's cat, remember? He came pre-named. Ah, so he might have had Bovril. Uh, fair enough. So, yeah. Came I... pre-named. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going to mock me now, but ironically, because he's very consistently called Marmite, Marmite actually responds to the word Marmite, whereas the other cat, Lily, just responds to oi. (laughs) (laughs) They nick food, they growl at each other a bit, and they sleep a lot. Yes. What a lifestyle. That's not significantly different from mine, if I'm honest. But... <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> I don't get to yeah. sleep as much. But, but do they rush at the end of the month to get everything done? <laughs> they have no concept of months. Uh, right, Blu-ray is released next week. We've got The Hobbit, uh, extended edition of Smog, uh, The Fault in Our Stars, and Chef, or Chef, yeah. yeah. Mm. Never heard of that. Oh, well, uh, Chef's very good. John Favreau, um... About a, a chef, obviously, who, <laughs> no uh, shit. who gets booted out, you know, falls out with his, the owner of his restaurant, and gets sacked, and um, after a bad review, and uh, buys a, a truck, you know, a food truck, and basically goes and re- rediscovers his uh, what made him interested in food in the beginning, and it, you know, and kind of re- gets rediscovered his mojo and, and, re- and builds his relationship up with his son. It's it's a really sweet movie. It's it's funny. It's charming. Uh, makes you quite hungry watching a lot of the food being cooked. Uh, the cast excellent. I really, really enjoyed it. Actually, I saw it in the cinema back in the summer and picked up on Blu-ray quite recently because I thought it was so good. Um, the Fault in Our Stars is a, a, a tweet teenager weepy, uh, although not bad actually. I saw that in the cinema too. I was about the only person in the cinema who was over the age of fifteen. And then The Hobbit: Desolation of Smaug's then edition, which is, believe it or not, twenty-five minutes longer. Because the, the one thing it definitely <laughs> needed to do another was twenty-five minutes. Yeah, uh, but this is yeah, this is the extended cut. So you also get um, you know about five hours of material about the making of the film you know commentary tracks etc so if you're a fan of the hobbit and middle earth movies in general i'm sure you'll be looking forward to this uh if you're not a fan i'm sure you'd rather 
lick the floor of an abattoir than sit through another 25 minutes of the Hobbit movie. But clearly, this is being released now in order to prep the way for the final Hobbit film, The Battle of the Five Armies, which comes out in uh, on the 17th of December. But, yeah, Any, uh, anybody interested? Apart from Steve, who has to go anyway. Anybody else interested? I bought the 3D Blu-ray and I've still not watched it all the way through. I've only watched it for test purposes. So, no, I'm not interested in another 25 minutes, thanks. Uh, no, in a word. Uh, even shorter, no. Well, it wasn't even shorter, that was the same. <laughs> well, it was the same length. If it was going to be shorter, it'd be no. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 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 okay, so that's uh, the Blu-rays coming up next week. Uh, what would be your pick, Steve? Uh, Hobbit, I've got that coming next week. Oh, bugger off. Oh, right. well, I've already got the chefs, um, which I must have got from the States because I've, I've had it for about a month. Um, yeah, if you're not a Hobbit fan... <laughs> If you're a Hobbit fan, clearly you're going to get The Hobbit. That, that's that obvious. If you're not, um, I think Chef's a great film. So yeah, check out Chef. Fantastic movie. Right. So uh, any of the food in Chef CGI'd, Steve? No, it's not. And um, uh, I think John Favreau actually had a, a couple of chefs, you know, as technical advisors. And they taught him some, you know, how to cut things up and that kind of stuff. So he looked like he knew what he was doing in the kitchen. The food in it is gorgeous. <laughs> You'll be really hungry at the end of it. Having said that, if you want to see some CGI food, watch was it the attack of the clones i mean lucas is so deranged at that point that he couldn't even just put a pair on the table he had to be a cgi <laughs> pair it's like come on mate put a pair on a bit of string and have it levitate that way and then take the string away with cg that would have been easy no have a cg pair which didn't even look realistic then and looks even less realistic a cg now. pair of what <laughs> as, as in a you know a pair fruit. oh a pear fruit right okay now they have pears in space well i think it's actually a pear but it looks a bit like a pear Obviously, in Star Wars, they got things like blue milk, didn't they? So, I'd be really struggling for things to talk about. <laughs> well, no, if you want to be honest, though, look at the, the Hobbit. The Hobbit, right? Um, if you watched the Lord of the Rings movies, which were made over 10 years ago now, um, back in 1999 to 2001, in fact, so even longer than that, nearly 15 years they started shooting those, they used uh, a combination of effects. So there was um, practical effects. There were some very big sets. They used what they referred to as bigger chills, which were gigantic miniatures, allowing the camera to get very close with lots of detail but they shot miniatures. Uh, and then obviously they used a degree of CG as well. And I think that's a good example of how to make a film. You know, you don't just use CG because CG is available. You use whichever method is most effective um, to get the, you know, the look you're, you're trying to achieve. Uh, and I think particularly with the miniatures, for example, there was a, there was a real sense of, uh, you know, realism to those mini- to, to the sort of the castles and this kind of stuff in them, in in the film, because they were these giant miniatures and, and they, they felt more, they were more real. Um, giant miniatures. <laughs> Yeah, they're called bigotures. They were like, no, these things were um, 30 feet high, you know, gigantic. Yeah, but obviously, yeah. they're representing something that's much, much bigger than that. So they are miniatures in terms of their miniature compared to the thing they're meant to represent, but they weren't in any way miniature compared to what you consider to be a miniature. They were enormous. But, you know, they look really good on film, beautifully shot, add in some CG, you know, people on the band parts, that sort of stuff, and you've got yourself looking, looks great. In The Hobbit, partly because they're shooting with 3D cameras and obviously you can't shoot miniatures with 3D cameras it's obviously going to be a miniature um, they've, they've CGI'd all this stuff and it just doesn't look as good um, now some of, the, some of the effects in The Hobbit are very good uh, I think the dragon is particularly impressive but other effects in it are well ropey and you're thinking like, how did that get past you know, quality control so there, there's over-dependence on CG is definitely impacting films in a way you, you, because, because you can achieve things and I'm very, very pleased to see J.J. Abrams saying things like, you know, I'm going to use practical effects where I can. I'm going to build sets. I'm going to use makeup effects, prosthetics. 
and not just be dependent on CG. And that's great. You know, we don't have to just use CG. It's a, it's a tool, like any other filmmaking tool. Use it when you need to. But don't just be your default option. There are yeah. other things you could do. So many other ways you can achieve effects in a film without resulting to computer-generated imagery. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the big one was always Jurassic Park, and it was touted as, you know, the first big CGI movie, but there's very, very little actual mm. CGI About eight in minutes that movie. in total, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of that is practical effects. A lot of it is, uh, well, I mean, the T-Rex was a full-size animatronic. working animatronic. You know, it, it was only certain shots there uh, where CG was used. And the other one, which... Um, I, I found fascinating because I never noticed it in the movie. It wasn't until I watched the extras um, after watching the Blu-ray was uh, Fight Club. Just how much CGs actually Fincher uses in his films, but he uses them in such such a way that you don't know it's CG that you're looking at. Yeah. Things like reflections in mirrors and you know subtle little camera changes and camera moves and stuff. It really really good use of CG. I'm sorry. The best use of CG ever is uh, obviously the uh, the rock when he rocks up at the end of uh, the Mummy Two, the uh, Scorpion King, and it looks like they just borrowed it from the PlayStation One game. Yeah, that's a good example of CG that's, that has not dated well. It did, no, what do you mean dated well? Didn't look good it at the time. Absolute bobbins on the day it came out. It was like clearly we have run out of time and money. And money. <laughs> do the best you can. I've only got my laptop. Do the best you can. It's awful, uh, but uh, conversely, I, I watched um, Jurassic Park about three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, and it stands up very well today because of it the does. reason Phil's just said, which is that most of it's animatronic and actually the CG is, is sparingly used and very well done, and and it still looks good twenty one years later. Yeah, it was on nice TV. One, one scene's it? always been ruined for me though now, where I always see the hand pushing the Velociraptor tail as it goes through the door, because otherwise it's stuck. <laughs> and you can't unsee it. It's very annoying. All right, I'll have to look out for that. Yeah. It's during the, where it enters the kitchen, and the first one goes through all right, then the second one sort of momentarily stops, and then you can just see a hand push the tail, and it starts to move in correctly. Uh, Mark, being a, a, a gamer, for f- sake, f- off, I don't want to buy it. always ring you at this time. <laughs> Uh, Mark, being a video gamer and and watching, uh, you know, that kind of footage over and over and over again, does it make CG seem real? Um, no. <laughs> in, in short, um, I'd like to say that I had a, a, a perhaps a greater tolerance for it, but the the problem with CG is always it's not necessarily the effect, but how it meshes with everything else. Yeah. Uh, the the one shot and from release, and even when I see it now, Titanic. The shot where the camera goes from the front uh, of the ship and then it rises up and it, it goes over the back. It's like, like a helicopter a, shot, isn't it? Like a helicopter sort of drone type shot where it goes over the top. And obviously everybody that's walking on the decks, it's all CG. They've all been against green screened and then really made small to look like they're walking on. And it just looks bloody awful. Yeah, it looked pretty ropey back in 97. Yeah, <laughs> totally. better with age. No, no. And, and there's lots of effects in that film that when you see it now, you think, oh, Jesus, that's bad. I think bad CG can can just ruin a film. I mean, in one particular instance, it nearly ruined an entire franchise, and that is in the Die Another Day. The CG work in that when he's oh, surfing on unbelievably it. <laughs> it's bad. It's so bad that you're thinking like, how did that ever ever get? I, I don't off? know how the people who worked on that sequence can can go to sleep at night and and <laughs> live with themselves. You know, it's yeah. terrible. 
I mean, it nearly killed the Bond franchise. I mean, it was you, know, you kind of think, well, that's pretty bad. So should we, do we want to watch any more Bond movies? They had to go back to rebooting it with, um, with Daniel Craig, didn't they? And, and, and a realistic, almost entirely CGI-free Bond. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was so much better for it. See, I have a particular issue with one type of CG, and that's CG blood, which is there was a time where, like, a, a low-budget movie would just have, like, it would, if it was an action film. Tomato sauce. Well, they would spend the money on squibs and, yeah, yeah. yeah, a suitable amount of tomato sauce, and there would be at least one scene where a guy would have to keep his arm up his sleeve and they'd just, like, stick in some kind of weird kind of arm facsimile <laughs> and just lop it off and he'd have to go ah and and now it's just there's so much of this kind of idea that oh well we'll just kind of fire guns at people and then we'll put it all in afterwards and it yeah. always looks absolutely terrible and it just ruins things for me whereas like i could how is it that you can watch like an old spaghetti western or something with terrible kind of orange blood and and somehow it just seems strangely more real. The the one that always um, I think that the last sort of big big movie to use practical effects in that way. Um, well, there was actually two. There was Braveheart, and the way that they did and and it was brutal the way that they did the effects. But the way that they did it, it looked so real and it looked so um, authentic. And the other one was Gladiator. Again, there was use of CG in that movie that hasn't stood up very well. I mean, the shot of the Colosseum in Rome, you know, the, the rising camera shot that goes over, looks mm. terrible nowadays. But um, a lot of the fight sequences, a lot of the fighting and, and, and that kind of thing, it was all done with practical effects. And it's so good for it. I'm, I, the one in Braveheart is the one where they, they raise the, um, the stakes where the horses are charging, the cavalry's yeah. charging. I mean, that is, if you're a horse lover, you can't watch that because it, but it was all plastic horses. And Thankfully, all the rest I, hate, I hate horses, so I'd rather they used real ones. That's why Soldier <laughs> Blue was so brilliant. But you look at that, and then you look at something um, that, that's a lot more recent, where they've overused the CG, and and it loses that impact. It doesn't look as real. It doesn't have that feeling of oh my god, I cannot look at that because you're looking at it because it doesn't look real. It looks like a computer effect. It also has a tendency to take away from. I, mean, I think we're so used to seeing like. CG battles, for example, we're thinking about The Hobbit again, or Lord of the Rings, you know, these hundreds of thousands of CG characters fighting. You know, you see a big battle and you think, yeah, it's CG. There's no, you're not awed by it in any way, shape or form. It's not like watching the film Waterloo, where there's a shot where a camera goes over the crest of a hill with the French cavalry and on the other side of the British squares waiting for them, soldiers in square formations, and it's all real soldiers, and you just think, fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> At no point have I ever said that since Jurassic Park in a movie, because... Yeah, you're just used to it now. You're just uh, CG. There yeah. are some yeah. hilarious side effects, though. Do you remember um, when they were shooting Troy um, and there was a claim that the CGI they got for... that that, that all of the people they were rendering for the battle scenes were, were being driven and... Uh, and motivated by a much more advanced form of artificial intelligence. So they didn't just move in mass. They did various things. And in actual fact... The first time that they ran the software and then just turned the intelligent levels up to a reasonable standard, all of the people involved just went, actually, this is really dangerous. So all the virtual characters ran away. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Which I thought was quite brilliant. But, um, yeah, more, more, of a side, more of an un- unexpected side. Uh, what, was, uh, what was Michael Bassett's one with the West Country 
hero thing. Solomon Kane. Solomon Kane. Um, some of the fight sequences in that really well done. There's a bit where he chops somebody's head off, and it takes some four attempts to to <laughs> take the head more off. Like it. You know, that that is. But that, that's how, in reality, it happens. It's not like one strike and the head's off. Got, so, talking about Fury, with the exception of all the tracer fire, um, the effects are appeared to be at least mostly practical with the tanks. Well, real tanks and, um, you know, explosions and stuff. It all look pretty realistic and, and, and actual, you know, real world. Not too CGI heavy, but very much like the opening 20 minutes of Brian, you know, which, which a lot of that was practical effects as well. So credit there, I suppose, for trying to do things. Same goes for, even though it's an awful film, uh, Need for Speed, where a lot of it is real cars racing each other very fast uh, and minimal uh, CG. You know, you know, you said that, um, but still, I watched that on, fair enough, it was on a plane on a seven-inch screen, but there were some times where you think, no, that wasn't done for real. That That's CG. Because there's loads of physics, there's no way a car could do that. Yeah. Well, a lot of it was done for real, though. And obviously, something's just too dangerous. But I think where they could, they did. And I, I admire them for at least trying to. Oh, well, I think um, uh, Tarantino on, on Death Proof. Again, trying to you know, do real car stunts and not just rely on CG all the time. Because there's a tendency to make filmmakers lazy, I think, because you think, ah, oh, it will fix to- it in post. Yeah, totally. There, there is that attitude. And, and the one thing that, um, I'd, you know, it's a question I would love to put to modern filmmakers. You know, if you were to remake that Bond stunt where he drives the car. Um, the American car upside down. Oh, just the loop, the loop, the loop, the yeah, loop over yeah. the bridge, and they did it for real. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know they actually did that stunt for real. I mean, you look and at then it, and destroyed unbelievable. all of their good work by using <laughs> stupid <laughs> sound <laughs> effects. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But it was it was all for real in camera. Um, is there any director nowadays who would even attempt to do that, or would they just do it in the computer? How many? The, the, the thing is that there's two two arguments. This I think there's a number of directors who'd be willing to. But the sort of film, the, the 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 sort of directors that would have the clearance in order to do that, um, don't generally have an interest in doing that sort of thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, Christopher Nolan is prone to doing doing unexpected things for real rather than CGI. I mm. mean, the the um the the truck flip in the Dark Knight is is real. all real. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, so he does. He does. I mean, he'd the- probably be persuaded to do it, but. The, the problem is that for any director that wanted to do it as a low-budget indie thing, they can't afford to do it, so they have to do CGI. The people that can afford to do it, I, I don't think there's any circumstance where they go, do you know what, let's loot this AMC, wherever it is. I can't remember if it's a gremlin or something else. So, yeah, it, it, I think there's a, 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 sort of, a, a sort of catch that mo- most of the directors who would be given carte blanche to do it would have no interest in doing it, unfortunately. I wonder if there are stricter rules, though, on what you can do as well from in terms of stunts and safety. Not if you go to exciting countries. In, well, I was going to, I was going to say that's the thing, which is like I watch a lot of kind of you know like Hong Kong cinema, that kind of thing, Eastern cinema, and as the rise of, should we say, um, an industry that was aware of the term health and safety, <laughs> you know, you saw less and less inventive stunts because you couldn't stick a man up you know, bamboo scaffolding and have him jump around, you know, 90 feet off the ground without a safety net and say, well, it's fair enough. We've got half a dozen stuntmen and only one <laughs> shot to get. Whereas these days, you know, it, it they, they are kind of going more towards CG. It does seem like, should we say, you know, things are getting a little bit more, a little bit safer. Yeah, and that's a good thing, isn't it? I think where CG has been really useful. Uh, it's been things like wire removal, 
uh, where you've had safety features for stuntmen, that kind of stuff, where they, you know, they are doing the stunt for real, but maybe they've got a wire attached so that they can't kill themselves, and you can quite easily remove that. Or, you know, it's subtle effects you don't even know are effects. You know, yeah, changing you something in the background. and You don't get the really, that real fun moment of... Do you remember in an 80s movie where someone would always jump off a building and then you get to see the stuntman in a wig? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like the shot in Blade Runner. You know? Oh, well, they changed that. They fixed that for um, the director's cut, didn't they? Did the they? Final cut. Yeah, they actually Which got one? to... Oh, I mean, you also about the bit when, when, when Zora falls through the glass, don't you? It's clearly well, obviously a stuntman. When stunt she woman. falls through the glass and also um, where the, the Daryl Hannah character has to do the, the flip and then lands on... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the butchers. Yeah, well, uh, so well. But the Zora bit with with the glass, where it's clearly obviously a woman in a in a wig, they actually shot Joanna Cassidy's face and put it on in, with CG, so it now looks like her going through the glass and not a stunt woman. Although she's still clearly not wearing high heeled shoes in that sequence. But anyway, they didn't try and fix certain things like that in, in Blade Runner, which I kind of admire. Which he's got for actually. Well, it's one good use of CG then. Yeah, no, I mean, CG is very useful for lots of things, particularly subtle, like, you know, nowadays. But nowadays, if, you, if you've got a scene in a car, used to be you'd either be in, in a car on a flatbed or on a road for real, or you'd be in front of a process screen, right? And you just have the film in the background. Sometimes often watch any Hitchcock movie. It's really obvious. Um, now, the green screen behind the car and they put it in. And, you, and, the, and sometimes they do, do it really well. And you don't even realise it's not actually they're actually in a car. Sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's pretty well done. And that's fine. But where, where CG's overused and, you know, our, we're very good at spotting something that's fake. I think the average person, you know, because we see the real world, we know that doesn't look right. So, I mean, physics and weight and the way things move, we can see that doesn't look quite right. And when they overuse CGI, you, you just know it's fake. It doesn't look right. And, you know, the shark still looks fake. Yeah, very good line there from Back to the Future 2. Thank you. I didn't get it. I knew Phil would. <laughs> <laughs> it's next year. Yeah, I know. 2015 next yeah, year. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> well, they've invented and... a hoverboard now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's still, it's let's face it, it's still Mr. Fusion that we're kind of all gunning <laughs> for here, isn't it? Yeah, that's the most useful one. Yeah. yeah. And sadly, uh, princess... or, or not, <laughs> depending on your point of view. <laughs> Just if. Uh, that is it for this week's AV Forums podcast and the last one for October 2014. Uh, don't forget, we are back again next Wednesday. In the meantime, I need to thank Steve Withers. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Mark Hodgkinson. See anything you like, exposing her breasts in brackets. I wish you're not exposing your breasts, Mark. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mark Botwright. It's still warm. And Ed Sally. More fancy talk. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for latest reviews, news and video. Plus, why not leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next Wednesday. 